told me a true story about a friend of hers who went to Russia. I think it was around 1991 this happened. Uh, his name was Michael, and he traveled to Russia on business back then when it wasn't quite as common as it is now. And uh, the only airline that Russia had flying at that time was called Aeroflot. And he had heard terrible things about this this airline, but figured that the things that he heard couldn't all be true. And so he got on the plane, and they sat him right in the front, in the aisle seat. And uh, the plane taxied, uh, took off, got up to cruising altitude without a hitch. Everything was going fine, so Michael starts to relax a little bit. And then the, the door to the cockpit opens, and out comes the navigator. Kind of tips his hat to Michael as he walks on past. And then out comes the co-pilot. He kind of says hello to Michael as well and goes about some urgent, uh, unurgent business. And then out walks the pilot down the aisle as well. So there's nobody left in the cockpit. And obviously the plane's on autopilot, but Michael still just nevertheless gets kind of nervous. So after some time, the pilot and co-pilot kind of talking together, uh, the plane kind of banks a little bit and the door to the cockpit slams shut. Well, the pilot and the co-pilot kind of look at each other and walk back up the aisle toward the, uh, the door, trying to keep as calm as possible and look as calm as possible, and come up to the door and jiggle the, the doorknob, and it's locked. Can't get back in. And Michael says he kind of looked around to see the other passengers, and no one else had any idea what was going on. He was basically the only one that was on to the problem. So they jiggle the doorknob some more, and it won't open. And so they take the curtain that separates them from the view of passengers, and they close it there. And except Michael, sitting right there on the front, he can see everything they're doing. And they start pulling on that door, and they're talking to one another in Russian and trying to get the door open. But still won't do it. He picks up a fire extinguisher and starts beating the, the lock on the door, and it still won't open. And finally, he takes a fire extinguisher and knocks a hole in the wall next to the, the door and reaches in and unlocks the door. And, of course, everything was just fine. Uh, I'm told that he kind of re-nicknamed Aeroflot to Aeroflop after that. I mean, we look at that, and we hear that kind of a story, and the fact that it's true, I mean, that would have been a, a very terrifying thing to be sitting there and seeing that happen, but in hindsight, it's pretty funny. It's hard to imagine, though, not having the kind of foresight that would alleviate that kind of a disaster from happening, isn't it? Of course, hindsight's always 2020. But we can look at Aeroflot and say, well, I would never have taken that kind of a chance. I mean, to leave the door open like that, uh, unattached to where, you know, everybody leaving the cockpit where this kind of thing could happen. I mean, hijack, anybody could run in there, all kinds of crazy stuff could happen. Uh, I would have never have done that with lives at stake. And yet, you know, we do the exact same thing in relationships. And particularly as we focus here on the Song of Solomon, as we finish up this week and next, we do the same thing in marriage. Where we are content to leave the marriage in some sense on autopilot and to go run off and do something else where that door can slam shut and we can crash. There is never a point in a marriage relationship when you can let up. Marriage is like, uh, it's like riding a bicycle 
on a flat surface, on a level surface. If you stop pedaling, you might be able to coast for just a little bit, but if you don't pedal and if you don't push, you're going to fall over. It's like gardening. If you don't do anything, weeds will come up. You don't have to do a thing to a garden, and weeds will grow. You'll have a great crop of weeds. But if you want what the garden is for, perhaps if it's a flower garden, the flowers you have to plant. You've got to plant the seeds and be pulling the weeds. In the garden, you have to constantly be pulling and planting. The bicycle, you've got to constantly be pedaling and pushing. And flying the plane, you need to be piloting. Marriage is the same. It requires a constant attention to keep that love alive. You try to autopilot it for a long time, and it will crash. Let's look together in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7. We've only got one more chapter after today to look at. We're going to wind it up next week. We've come all the way through this relationship from seeing it in its initial stage through attraction, what made them attract to one another was their character. We've seen the, the marriage, the, the wedding night. We've seen the conflict. We've seen the reconciliation. And now we focus on something that is critical. And if you are a married person, this may be for you the most critical message of the whole series. How do you keep that love alive? Well, as we start here in chapter 7... We're going to look at a passage that we often use to, in our small group Bible studies to teach folks as an illustration of how to interpret the Bible figuratively. Now, obviously, the Song of Songs has all kinds of figurative language we've seen all throughout. So Brian has uh, illustrated for us a literal rendition of these verses. And we're going to show them to you, starting at the feet and panning all the way up, the body of this wife as Solomon describes her. So we won't have the text on the screen, just the pictures. So listen as I read, and you look at a literal interpretation. Solomon says, How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory, your eyes like the pools in Heshbon, by the gates of bath Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Now, to me, that's not that delightful. But that is a literal rendition of what Solomon says, isn't it? Now, here we talk about, as the Bible should be interpreted literally, and yet that's, uh, that's literal right up there. And yet, at the same time, we also need to remember that you can interpret a figure of speech literally. For example, if I tell you, man, I'm starving, well, you would not interpret that to mean that I'm malnourished. You would interpret my figure of speech to simply mean I'm very hungry. Okay, you can interpret a figure of speech literally. And that's all we do when we go through the Song of Songs. 
We look at issues like this where he talks about the jewels and the legs here uh, and the hips. That doesn't mean that they're made of, of jewels any more last week than his abs were actually ivory. But it was a, it's a figure of speech to illustrate a point. The, uh, the round goblet, she obviously had an enzy, belly button. The heap of wheat there with the lilies and then the, the fawns are soft, you want to touch them. That's the illustration that, that we're given here uh, as Solomon describes his wife. And there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, using the poetic language like this, in some sense, kind of softens this, uh, this erotic language into something that is a, l a little less perceived as crude or, or brash, you might say, or just right there honest, uh, to a little bit more diplomatic way of saying things. Especially now, look at the text at verse 7. This, this is very good to be couched in figurative language. He says, Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. So again, using this figurative language to say something that we'd all be really embarrassed to, to read, uh, if he just told us right out what he was doing or what he wanted to do. The way Solomon wrote these first few verses and as she replies here is the exact same pattern that we see back in chapter 4 on their wedding night. And I think Solomon did this on purpose so that we can compare the two. Now, we're not going to go through you know verse by verse and look at all the detail, but I say that we can compare the two because we see from the time they were married to the time... Uh, where is represented now, we see a growth in their relationship. For example, uh, we don't have verse 2 uh, up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, look at it. Your navel's like a round goblet, he says, which never lacks mixed wine. We've seen the, the mixed wine, the wine being the, the idea of celebration, of joy, and that uh, her body, particularly her navel, never lacks mixed wine. That is not a, a statement that you could make on the wedding night. This represents a, uh, a pattern in their life. This represents something that he could see continually. You see a maturing happening here, a maturation, uh, if you will, that you couldn't see initially. And not only does he say it, but she does as well. We ended uh, there at verse 9. And it's interesting where he says, "...and your mouth is like the best wine." In the original text Solomon wrote this, the Hebrew text is one big long sentence. It's like she jumps in and interrupts him at the second part of verse 9. And then she starts speaking, almost as if she can read his mind, what he's thinking. She finishes his figure of speech regarding the, the wine. She says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep, meaning them. Then she says, I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. The desire, obviously, in context, is a physical, sexual desire. I think this is an interesting, also, this interesting verse, because it shows a progression in her mind and the security that she has in the relationship. And this, I would like us to look at this. You can see here in the first verse, we've seen th three times she says this. Chapter 2 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. She says, in the first time, my beloved is mine and I am his. She puts her ownership of him first, the first in the sentence. 
And then the next time she says it, she says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Now he puts, uh, she puts the beloved's ownership of her. So you can see she gets more secure in the relationship. Now her ownership of him kind of takes a secondary place. And now here finally at the end, she keeps uh, his ownership of her first, and then she strengthens it by saying his desire is for me. The desire there being a sexual desire. And she leaves her ownership completely out of the picture. You see how her security has grown even more and more and more. I mean, how much more secure can a woman be to know that her husband desires sexually nobody else but her? If she comes to that point, then that is a woman who has security in that relationship. And this reflects this. So we see both physically, their physical relationship and their uh their emotional relationship relating to one another maturing. And it's written in obvious ways here for us to pick up on it, that there is growth in this relationship. And so that gives us a great principle from the text, and that is that God intended marriage and its enjoyment to grow in every area. Not just one area, but in every area. There was a neighbor a guy who came over to this middle-aged couple who lived right next door to him. And he came over to him, and there they were with their dog uh, standing there. And, he's, and he comes up to the husband, and he says, What's your dog's name? And he said, Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. He says, I'm terrible with names. He said, uh, Tell me what's the name of that, that evergreen shrub. It's got those little dark berries on it. And the guy said, uh, A myrtle? He says, Yeah. He says, That's it. And then the guy turns to his wife and says, Myrtle, what's the name of our dog again? <laughs> There's nothing funny about that, though, when it gets to be true. Where you have got years and years of marriage behind you, all of a sudden the kids are gone, and you wake up and you look at the person there next to you, and you go, who are you? What's your name? Tell me again. Half of your married life, if the Lord grants to you a spouse and grants to you children, if those things are his will for you, half of your married life is going to be spent without kids. Generally, it's the second half. And that means for the first 25 years of your marriage, uh, there are about, if you have a couple of kids, thereabouts. The first half of the 50-year marriage that you may have is going to be spent with kids. And the second half is going to be without. That's why there's so many empty nesters that will stay married 25 years, but after their kids leave, they look at each other and they don't have a relationship, and so they divorce. Because the relationship, has the family unity has been focused on the children, the children's activities, the children's needs, relationships with the children, ministering to the children. All of a sudden, the children are gone, and there's nothing there between the spouses because the relationship hasn't been nurtured all that time. You've got a first couple of years, perhaps, before kids where it was, but then it wasn't maintained all those other years. And then when the kids are gone, there's nothing left to hang on to. It's like that, that uh, song that the band sang, that Harry Chapin song. I want to read to you the last couple of lines in that, because it, to me they are profound. He says, as you sit there crying, I wonder who you are, the partner, stranger, friend and foe who's come with me this far. We stand here in the ashes and I guess it's quite clear. We did not really grow too much each year. So you say we're going nowhere. Well, I know that's where we've been. 
but still, I can't help wondering, can we begin again? I feel so full of questions, curiosity, and fear, but could we grow a little bit? Could we grow a little bit? Can we grow a little bit this year? To me, that's very insightful, very common, too. Except what's unfortunate, though, is the time that people realize that there is a need to grow. The wall between them is so high that they don't want to bother with trying to scale it or to tear it down. If you're not careful, marriage will not end up as God intended. God intended marriage and its enjoyment to grow. If you're not careful, though, it can end up like this. Look at this cartoon. This guy comes into this counselor and the counselor tells him, when I said I'd like to see both of you at 2.30, Harry, I meant you and your wife. Didn't have a clue that that's what he meant. Because his wife wasn't in the picture. It is not difficult in a marriage, again, so focused on the children or so focused... Uh, as the Harry Chapin song said, to, to go focus on so many other areas that finally when you do come back around to looking at each other, you have nothing in common except your mailing address. You have your interests that are totally opposite of one another and you're not willing to give, give up on any of them and create any common interests. And so the marriage takes a nosedive while you're struggling at the doorknob to get in. Usually you hear the word in politics, uh, but a stalemate can refer to any kind of a situation where there is an impasse, where you cannot go any further in the circumstance. Uh, you see it a lot of times in politics, but when I thought about that word, uh, stalemate, I thought, you know what, that could work in marriage too. It can be both the cause and the effect of a relationship. If you have a mate or a marriage that is stale, where you just, you know, you're just content with the bland mediocrity. You know, you just, you just kind of found your niche and you don't want to have to fool with growing. I'm comfortable doing my thing. She's comfortable doing her thing. You know, let's just keep on and let's don't rock the boat. You have that kind of a situation and there is no growth. You have a, a, a stale marriage or a stale mate that makes it impossible to grow. So you have a stalemate. You have an impasse that you can't get beyond. It's both the cause and the effect in that sense. I want to I ask you a question, see if this uh, situation describes your home. The husband comes home, beat at the end of the day, uh, eats his supper, watches TV, might say a couple of short, brief words to his family, falls into bed, dead tired, wakes up early in the morning, does, does it all over again. On Saturday, of the season we've come out of anyway, you sleep late, you get up, you mow the yard, you take care of everything that's broken at the house all week long, you fall in bed, dead tired again. You get up, uh, you sleep late on Sunday morning, come second hour, you come to church, you go out to eat or whatever, you eat, take a nap on Sunday, you go to bed, and it just starts over all, all again. Over and over and over and over. There's no growth just continual maintenance of the status quo. I read that Dr. James Dobson said that that situation that I just described to you 
is the main cause for 90% of the marital breakups that happen every single year. You've got a husband in love with his job and a wife who uh, is vulnerable, who is lonely, and with a low self-esteem. And neither of them does anything toward the other person because you're so focused on the status quo of just maintaining what you've got. You can't give up on the marital relationship. It's got to continue to grow in every single area. God intended marriage to do that. So how do you do it? How do you keep pedaling and pushing? How do you keep planting and pulling? How do you keep piloting and co-piloting? How do you keep the love alive? How did they do it? Look at verse 11. She says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The word there, love, in Hebrew is speaking of the physical love. It's not talking about emotions. It's talking about sex. She is here essentially saying... Uh, let's go out. That's exactly what she says in verse 11. Come, my beloved, let us go out. So here's a very simple principle that you don't have to dig very deep into this text to find. And that is to keep the love alive by regularly courting your spouse. What did she do? She initiated here a romantic excursion into the country, an extended time here to, to spend the night in the villages, to focus on their relationship, both uh, relationally and physically. To deepen the intimacy. A generation ago, there were a million people that went up to the World's Fair in New York. They had an exhibit up there that wowed people. They stood in line for hours to look at cellophane. And to look at cars with air conditioning in them to look at a mechanical robot named Electro and, a, uh, and his little dog named Sparky. They stood in line for hours to look at these things. And I read in September that when the, the folks were trying to organize the state fair, our state fair, uh, that they wanted that same kind of wow feeling. In fact, that's exactly what the article called it. How to recapture that wow feeling of yesteryear in the state fair. You know how they did it? They just repeated the formula. Now, they didn't bring cellophane out for people to look at, but they had a new kind of electronic, you know, uh, a big oper operating table. And if you went to that exhibit, you got to see it. And people were wowed at it. But it was the same formula as they had a generation ago that caused that feelings of yesteryear. In your marriage, are the, the feelings of yesteryear gone? The time that you had courting one another? Is it gone? If it is, if you don't feel like you did when you're recording, it maybe that you're not doing what you did when you're recording. Repeat the formula. That doesn't mean that you have to bring out the cellophane. By that I mean that you, uh, you do the same old thing over and over, but do what the fair did. Do something new. But court one another. And that's exactly what they do. Something new. Look at verse 13. The mandrakes, she says, have given forth fragrance, and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you. 
my beloved. You know what mandrakes are? The Arabs called this the devil's apple. It was a fruit, a real rare fruit. Mandrakes were the, you might say, the Viagra of ancient Israel. Uh, and if you're not sure what Viagra is, maybe green M&Ms fits a little better into your vocabulary. Okay? Now, obviously, obviously, the, the aphrodisiac uh, is not, mandrakes are re not really that, any more than green M&Ms are, that they were reputed to be. And so she, has, she essentially tells him, uh, I've got reservations for us out in the country, and I'm taking along a bag of green M&Ms. She's given him this hint like, you know, this is what I have in mind. In case he didn't get that, and he would have, there's no way he would have missed it. She says, over our doors are all choice fruits. That word choice fruits in the Hebrew text and refers to song, and the Song of Solomon is always talking about sexual pleasure. And over our doors, what that means is that they would keep the fruit in their homes uh, over the doors in a basket. Notice it's more than one door, so we're talking lots of fruit here that she has saved. Notice it says both new and old. It's not just cellophane. It's not just the same old thing. It's new. It's creative. There was a lady I heard of that said, You could set your watch by the way my husband makes love to me. I know exactly how long this is going to take, exactly how long this is going to take, exactly when he'll be done. Every single time. Boom. Go. Boom. Stop. She says just like clockwork. And yet that's not at all what you see here. You don't see that here. You know, that is where the, the rut of mediocrity comes in, where you're content to go to the same old diner because that's where we've gone all the time. Not do anything new and different. You know, when I am hurting, as often I am, for something creative to do romantic with Kathy, sometimes I'll call a friend of mine uh, and Kathy's She's a woman. And I'll say, look, what's something romantic and cheap that we can do? And the last thing she told me, she says, well, hey, take her down and walk on Turtle Creek. So it was a great idea. A great, uh, it cost me two bucks in gas to get down there. And we had a nice romantic walk. Kathy thought it was wonderful. And it was very inexpensive. Inexpensive dates are the best ones right. Anyway, guys, they are. Because you get to focus on what's really important to keep that love alive by regularly courting your spouse. You know, even secular statistics show, hands down, that by far the most satisfying sexual relationship that a human being can have is one person in the context of marriage. Incidentally, that's why people who have repeated partners as they're single never find satisfaction with that. Because God didn't design there to be satisfaction with that. He designed there to be is even the secular statistics show God designed all aspects of marriage with one person to grow, even the sexual aspect of it, to get better and better and better, both new and old. That is because you get to know a person. And if I can use their fruit metaphor here, you get to learn what are the good apples and the bad apples in your relationship, and you leave the bad apples home. Or as I said, you toss them out before you go on your trip. You get to know somebody. It's a person that you're having this experience with. It's not just a body. 
It's a person that you grow deeper and deeper in love with. And incidentally, when you get to be even 70 or 80 years old, you can still have, and I don't laugh, it's true, a great satisfying sexual relationship because it's not the body that excites you. It's the person as it was intended to be and as it ought to be straight from the beginning. When we get so fouled up, our culture steers us toward just the physical. It's like trying to uh, sit on a stool with two legs on it. It's got to have three legs. That third leg is the relationship with one another. They've got to all be there. All continue to grow closer and closer. Now look in chapter 8, the first few verses here. She continues to show the creativity. Oh, and incidentally, I want you to notice, ladies, who made the initiative here? The woman, the wife, exactly. Now that is not a rebuke, that is an encouragement. So many times women feel intimidated to be the aggressor in the physical relationship. Don't be. Be the aggressor. I guarantee you he'll love it. Exactly like Solomon did here. She was the aggressor. But you know what's interesting? Here's another, again, a showing a maturity in their relationship. Who has she desired to be the aggressor up to this point? It's been him. Let his hand, uh, uh, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She desires him to make the initiative. But now she's the one saying, hey, let's go out. I've got mandrakes. I've got choice fruit. We'll have a great time. She took the initiative. And she continues to do so. Now chapter 8, as she continues to flirt with her husband, she says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. And by that she means a real brother, a sibling. Why? Because if I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. What's she talking about there? Well, in that culture, uh, for a spouse to show affection to one another was, uh, you didn't do that. But a sibling, a brother and sister, could show affection to one another. Uh, we saw this in Russia. The, saw a brother and sister over there who were walking down the sidewalk holding hands. Colleen Graham was there and she says, oh, isn't that sweet? Because it's not something you see over here in America very much. Okay, it's a cultural thing. And for this culture, it was fine for brother and sister to show affection. She is saying that she wants to continually show this, this husband of hers so much affection, she doesn't want to limit it to just in private. She says, I wish that when we were out in public, you were like a brother so I could kiss you and no one would say, ah, quit that. She wants to continue that even in public. But notice also verse 2, in private. She says, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Literally, she's telling the daughters of Jerusalem there, uh, why should you arouse or awaken my love? Um, she's essentially asking, why after I have held up to you what marriage can be? Showing you all throughout the book, and remember, this, this is not the first time we've seen this phrase. She turns to the single ladies again and says, if you can have it like I've got it, why blow it? Why not do it right? Go ahead and do it right. Why would you arouse or awaken it before it's time, until she pleases? Do it right and have what I have. She is in essence saying it is worth the wait to do it right. So she encourages them in that way. There was a wife standing in the front yard <clears throat> and every day she noticed 
that the neighbor would come home and would meet his wife at the doorstep and give her a passionate kiss right there on the door. Everybody could see it. And so she turns to her husband and she says, hey, how come you don't do that? And he says, well, honey, I hardly even know the lady. I think he missed the point. The point is not go kiss her, but why don't we have that same kind of romance as initially? You see that here with Solomon and his bride, even after they're married. They continued to regularly and creatively court one another. They had creative outings together that they planned. They had created uh, physical intimacy. They had uh, creative flirting, even in public here even after they were married. Kathy and I have tried, uh, ever since we've been married, to have a regular date night. I try to do it once a week. Since kids have come along, uh, it's a little more hit and miss, more hit than miss, thank goodness. But even more important is it with the children, so you still focus on the marriage. But I think it's also important not just to do it on a weekly basis, but also to do it, uh, have an extended time like they did, kind of uh, spend the night someplace. You know, every time I say this to somebody, they give me the look like, oh, geez, I mean, you know, we don't have time to do that. We don't have money to do that. Yes, you do. You do. If you don't have time to do this, if you're too busy to court your spouse, and you're too busy to be married, and something needs to go, and it's not the marriage, <laughs> it's whatever is keeping you from courting your spouse. You know, if you saved up $2.50 a week, think about it, you probably spend that in Cokes. Uh, more than that, probably. If you saved up $2.50 a week, you could go once a year over to the Radisson and have a wonderful time like they described here. To nurture that relationship. To give the kids to some neighbors, give the kids to some parents or friends or whoever, to where you can have a regular time weekly and a regular time annually, an extended time, to keep that love alive. I saw a bumper sticker this week. It said, the best things in life aren't things. I thought, you know what? That's probably a Christian that has that. Uh, to realize that, oh, how far short we fall of looking at that issue. The best things in life, we say, yeah, are, are, are free, it's people, we all know that, but then we don't live it. We'll focus on so many other things other than what's really important. We'll wake up after 25, 30 years of marriage and go, now what was your name again? Josh McDowell gave the commencement address to Biola University this past May. And this is what he said. This is the whole message, okay? He said, My commencement message to you is this. Always pursue an intimate love relationship with your spouse and spend time with your kids. God bless you. And then he sat down. Boy, don't you wish my messages were that short and to the point. Isn't that great? Pursue an intimate love relationship with your spouse. Spend time with your children. There's nothing said there about your job. There's nothing said there about your yard. There's nothing said there about your degrees. What is said there, and this is from a guy, I guarantee he knows what he's talking about. Make sure you spend time with your spouse. Make sure you spend time with your kids. Because that's where life really matters. But keep that love alive. So remember this. Uh, 
remember, God intended marriage and its enjoyment to grow in every area, not to be stale. And its enjoyment, too, not, not to be boring, but to be enjoyed. How do you do that? You keep that love alive by regularly courting your spouse. Don't give up on that. Don't ever stop peddling. I want to read to you a poem that was like a... It really hit me when I, when I read it. I don't know the author. The author is unknown. It's called The Wall. It says, They lived with such a heavy barricade between them that neither battering ram of words nor artilleries of touch could break it down. Somewhere between the oldest child's first tooth and the youngest daughter's graduation, they lost each other. Throughout the years, each slowly unraveled that tangled ball of string called self. And as they tugged at stubborn knots, each hid his searching heart from the other. Sometimes she cried at night and begged the whispering darkness to tell her who she was. He lay beside her, snoring like a hibernating bear unaware of her winter. He climbed into a tomb called The Office, wrapped his mind in a shroud of paper figures, and buried himself in customers. Slowly, the wall between them rose, cemented by the mortar of indifference. One day, reaching out to touch each other, they found the barrier they could not penetrate, and recoiling from the coldness of the stone, each retreated from the stranger on the other side. For when love dies, it is not in a moment of angry battle, not when fiery bodies lose their heat. It dies panting, exhausted, expiring at the bottom of a wall it could not scale. So the secret is, don't let the wall rise. And I don't know where you are in your relationship, but if that wall is there, and if it to you is a stalemate, if it's an impasse, if it's something you've tried, you feel like you can never get over, I have one verse of Scripture written by King David that will challenge that thought. King David said, speaking to God, with your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. When I read that poem, I thought about that verse. With my God, I can scale a wall. And I know that there are those of you who are here today who walk in, who paint on the smile, who say, when asked how you're doing, doing great, never better. I don't care what it is, be it a wall in a marriage or any other aspect of your life. You can try all your life to get over that by yourself but you will lie expiring at the bottom of a wall you could not scale unless you try it with God. And if you can't do it alone, get some uh, professional counseling. Don't bring your dog. Both come together. And God will help you over that wall if you come to Him on His terms. Let's pray. Father, we need this fresh reminder today. I know I do, to keep the love alive by continually romancing and courting that one whom we vowed to do that with, standing there in the altar in front of you, in front of friends, many years ago. Lord, I know that there are hurting people hearing my voice right now, and I pray that they might come to you first if they don't know you, 
that they might come to you knowing that their sin will keep them out of heaven and placing their faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins. And with that faith and knowing that you are a God who can raise the dead, that you can also raise a marriage from the ashes. Lord, I pray you might give a glimmer of hope today and that they might cling to you to scale that wall, knowing that it can be done. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you today. Thank you.